Welcome to Great Ideas, broadcast on WKXL and available wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Matt Robeson, and looking closer at just how dysfunctional the U.S. Congress has become and what we might do to fix it. The Gallup poll found in January 2022 that Americans' approval of the job that the U.S. Congress is doing had fallen to 18%, one of the lowest points in the last 50 years. The last Congress under President Trump passed the fewest bills that got signed into law of any Congress going back to 1973. And in fact, that record-breaking level of futility has become almost commonplace in the last decade, since the last three sessions of Congress from 2011 to 2017 were some of the least productive on record. The Congress almost never does its annual homework assignment of passing individual appropriations bills, that's the way we spend our money, It engages in stunts like the House voting to repeal or amend the Affordable Care Act more than 50 times with no hope of success, and it seems continually locked in partisan flame wars. Our guest today examined a slice, just a slice, but a really meaningful slice of this problem in a recent op-ed in the Washington Post titled, House Committees Are Hearing From Fewer fewer and Fewer Witnesses. That Hurts Public Policy. So today, I want to look not only at that specific and very meaningful problem, but also the larger issue of just how off track one of our three branches of government has gone and what we can do to fix it. That guest today is Dr. Kevin Kosar. He's a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, where he studies the U.S. Congress, the administrative state, American politics, election reform, and the U.S. Postal Services. You know, it sounds like one of those kids is not like the other, but they're all important. Earlier than that in his career, Dr. Kosar spent more than a decade working for the Congressional Research Service. He's focused on a wide range of public administration issues. There, he has taught public policy at NYU. He's written numerous books, including notably Moonshine, A Global History, and Whiskey, A Global History. I get the feeling that after we talk about how messed up the Congress is, we will need heavy doses of both. Dr. Kosar, welcome to Great Ideas. Thank you. Thank you for that rousing introduction. That's great. Well, rousing is is kind of the before. And, you know, if we take your advice on both of those, maybe the after. So look, I, like I kind of previewed a moment ago, I know that on the surface, this sounds like a down in the weeds kind of issue that's fit for congressional nerds like you and me. But I really, truly believe it is not. It, it, it's very meaningful. So maybe we can just kind of take this up to 30,000 feet. I, I, what, is the, what is the big problem that you're trying to solve in your op-ed and, and in the rest of your congressional reform work? And how does looking at the way that Congress conducts hearings connect to that big problem? Well, first I'd say uh, the basic problem that I've been tackling is to figure out how do you get elected officials to govern? Because governing is not easy work. Governing means making hard choices among trade-offs because despite our deficits, money really is not infinite. Governing means brokering across diversity and differences of opinion and trying to come up with something that everyone can live with, which, you know, moves the ball forward for society a bit. Governing, in short, is a lot of hard work. Why would anybody have any incentive to do it? Well, you know, James Madison, the founders, they believe that, you know, the ability to exercise authority, to 
push public policy forward, to defend the Constitution and all that sort of stuff would incentivize legislators sufficiently. And if that wasn't enough, you know, we have elections. I think his hope and others hope was that, you know, the public would have some esteem for competency in governing. But what we're seeing a lot in Congress now is people who are devoted towards performance art, to polishing their personal brands, to holding the position of legislator, but not actually legislating. And to bring it to the hearings issue, I think that's a place where you really see it firsthand. Hearings are supposed to be a place where legislators get together, who specialize in a particular policy area, and they're supposed to learn and discuss and to revise their opinions. And we just don't see enough of that, unfortunately. It's, it, this really resonates with me because in committees, and it's so easy to make fun of this. I look, George Lucas devoted an entire Star Wars prequel to making fun of work in committees. Actually, it's the best line from an Empire Strikes Back. It's, you know, I'm not a committee. Well, guess what, folks? In committees, that's where Congress used to do the heavy lifting. It's where they used to seriously look at questions of public policy and try and figure out what's going on and what should we do about it? And maybe the answer is nothing. And maybe there are differences and disagreements, but it's all about this is where the place where you learn and then you start to iron out differences. And it just brings to mind everything you just said just brings to mind. One of the pieces of guidance I got from one of my mentors, David Gergen, who said there are two kinds of people who go to Washington, people who go to be something and people who go to do something. And it sounds like we have an awful lot of people who are focused on being something rather than doing something. And it plays out most in the committee process. So you actually look very specifically, you did a ton of work on this that is reflected in your op-ed. What has happened? How, how do you see this manifested in these committee hearings and with the number of witnesses that you see in committee hearings? Right. Well, we looked at over a 45-year period. It was myself, Professor Lauren Bell, and uh, J.D. Rackey, who's pursuing a PhD in political science. They're the ones who scraped together an immense amount of data. And that, that's a whole other problem. Congress does not produce clean data, so it makes it hard to study the institution. But they put all this information together, and they coded it. And the basic question being looked at was, how many hearings are being had, and how many witnesses are being called? And witnesses are important because witnesses are stakeholders. You know, if you're going to make policy affecting, I don't know, tariffs on automobiles, you probably want somebody from the auto industry to have a voice at the table and to give their opinion. Witnesses are important because they share expertise. Again, lots of governing issues are really abstruse and in the weeds, and you, you need people who are trained in this stuff. And what we found is that while the number of hearings in Congress over the 45-year period has stayed roughly the same, the number of witnesses are about today are about one-fifth of what they were 45 years ago. So in short, hearings are happening, but they're less about the witnesses. And surprise, back to our basic point, it's more about the members. It's more about members coming in and delivering monologues and harangues and acting up and not hearing from the great diverse crazy, crazy quilt that is America. And that's a problem. Possibly. Possibly. I mean, the numbers are stark. I mean, one fifth the number of witnesses, that really does kind of smack you in the face. But 
is it possible that we're looking at this through a little bit of rose-colored glasses, just from the sense of imagining a time past where committees were more serious? I mean, is it the case that committees used to genuinely use expert testimony and real fact-finding to develop legislation in a way that they no longer do? Yeah, it's not a complete decline and, and fall day and night type situation. To be clear, there's good hearings happening all the time in Congress today. I mean, you just go to C-SPAN 2 and you can hop around once you get past the screaming one. You can find one that is going to just put you to sleep because it's experts droning on and members asking sober questions. And they're working on some low salience, highly technical issue like the socioeconomic status of Costa Rica and current American aid there too. And there's just not going to be any fireworks. And that's good. But when the data show you that there's this massive drop in the number of witnesses, I mean, it's just undeniable. It means Congress is hearing less frequently in sessions that are devoted to policymaking and oversight from Americans. And you just can't sugarcoat that or make it look pretty in any way. And to some degree, I, I, I mean, it's not just Americans. It's Americans with expertise. It's, it's experts that they're not hearing from. And I know there, I mean, there was a whole book, Tom Nichols' book, The Death of Expertise. I mean, there, there, there's been a lot written on how in our political culture, look at our culture overall, we don't seem to give the same esteem to expertise that we used to. I mean, look, you know, my wife's a doctor and she experiences this a lot in practice where people, you know, come armed with doctorates that they got on the internet in terms of, you know, here's something that, that, that I read that seems pretty reputable and therefore I need to take X. It does seem like, is there in, in your research, is there in addition to the overall decline in number of witnesses, are we also losing a depth of expertise or, and is Congress relying less and less on real domain experts to try to make decisions in public policy? Well, one slice of experts we are seeing uh, fewer appearing before Congress come from the executive branch. And there are a couple of theories about why that might be happening. In part, presidents increasingly are directing the executive branch in a top-down way and simply making people unavailable. And, you know, if Congress asks somebody to come over and the agency hems and haws and makes it difficult, you know, they can often get away with it. I mean, what are you going to do as a, as a, as a committee to force somebody to show up? And agencies will, you know, say, no, you can't have this person. You can have this person instead. And that person is not the one we really want to talk to because they don't actually have the expertise. They're a spokesperson. And so there's part of that. The other part of it is people in the executive branch just not seeing a reason to show up. Yeah, why is that? You, you get into that just a little bit in your op-ed, but why is it that witnesses, particularly these, these executive branch witnesses, but I get the sense that this applies to a, a wide swath of witnesses, why are they unwilling to appear? It's because too often hearings get hijacked by legislators who want to turn them into either an internet meme or a C-SPAN and want to polish their brand and you know even perhaps fundraise by, you know, taking out, taking extreme positions. You know, I think the one that probably most folks are familiar with these days are the Rand Paul, the senator from Kentucky, exchanges with Dr. Anthony Fauci. I don't know how many of those death cage matches we've had over the last year and a half, two years, but they're not pleasant to watch. 
and they don't seem to move the public policy ball forward in any way. It involves, you know, a man trained as a dentist arguing with an epidemiologist and them going back and forth and basically dissing each other. And it's not clear what actually we get out of it, other than for certain strange members of society who enjoy that sort of conflict, you know, they like to watch it. I, I'm going to have to bookmark this, this question of the strange members of society who like to watch this kind of thing, like who actually, they're not relying on finding out about it as a meme on Twitter or, you know, like they're getting it dropped in their email inbox as a fundraising appeal. These are people who actually like curate this kind of content for themselves. They go seeking it with the remote control. I, I, I do want to talk about that in a second, but I have to first... I don't know. I feel like I'm stepping into a, a confessional with you. You've gone from a, a PhD to perhaps a priest here. Forgive me, Dr. Kosar, I have sinned. I just want to share an anecdote with you. During the, the height of the great, well, this was the sort of the inception of the, of the great reception, uh, great recession when companies were going down and the economy was going down and the stock market was going down. And I was a staffer for my sometimes beyond politics co-host, former Congressman Paul Hodes. He was sitting on the Financial Services Committee, and they were starting to do hearings on what went wrong, why, why is the economy crashing, and why what was what was Wall Street up to? And we had a witness from AIG, which was very shortly to receive a bailout. Here's what happened behind the scenes. Again, this is me in the confessional, just the two of us, and all of the tens of thousands of listeners who are catching this on radio. We sat around, and I convened the staff, and I said, "All right, look." If we want to make this memorable, because this is a big moment, this is probably going to be national news covered on the, on the big networks, which we still cared about in those days, 2008, like the stone ages of media, we need to find a way to, to, to make this viral. So give me a riff, like let's brainstorm here. Give me a riff on AIG. Like it's got to be something rhyming or alliterative or, or something. And lo and behold, we came up with it. We brainstormed it together. And then Congressman Hodes in the hearing delivered a line where he said to the American people, AIG has come to stand for arrogance, incompetence, and greed. And boom, we led all the national telecasts. So now you see why I needed to get this off my chest, because you said right at the top of the show that these hearings have become performance art. And in fact, the entire enterprise of being in Congress has largely become performance art. Now that I've unburdened myself to you, does this kind of ring true? Is this what you're seeing across the board, that that's, that's the object that members of Congress have in mind in going to hearings and, and hearing witness testimony at all is to try and have these kinds of moments? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, in American politics and live broadcasts have, have changed everything. I mean, whether it's it's campaigning or whether it's inside Congress. I mean, you know, presidential campaigns they spend so much of their time prepping for debates and coming up with zingers, you know, because they know that's what's going to catch attention from an otherwise kind of bored electorate and otherwise bored media and give them something easy to repeat. So yeah, this is, you know, a rational adaptation of rational creatures, you know, trying to you know, seek the best for themselves. It becomes just a question of degree. I mean, there is nothing wrong with, you know, a legislator sitting on the dais and you've got a witness who's, you know, had some sort of deep involvement in the meltdown of the entire U.S. economy and, you know, all that, giving them a hard time. But there's got to be substance built in there. Otherwise, it really just becomes performance. And to, to some degree, you end up betraying 
you know, what your position is. Because it's not simply raising attention to the issue, it's also directing towards solutions. And that's what troubles me about a lot of the hearings. They are noise. They are not about actually coming to a solution. They're about purposely polarizing the country on a question. Often, as you intimated earlier, for other purposes. There's a particular slice of voters out there that you want to get all riled up. There are particular funders out there whose dollars you want to pour in more heavily. So you, 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 you play to that. But if you play to that too much, you're just not doing your job. You're, that's not what you were elected to do. And just to kind of, for people who haven't had the privilege, is privilege the right word, of attending a congressional hearing or seeing the camera pan out, if you're, if you're watching on C-SPAN too, could you just kind of paint a little bit of a picture? I have sat through a lot of congressional hearings as a staffer. Generally, my experience is, and you know, this is going back over sort of a decade of, of doing this, it was pretty rare that there was anyone sitting inside the hearing room besides maybe if you were lucky, a reporter, maybe a couple of witnesses who were there and a bunch of staffers like me. But more than that, more than that, it was rare that you had the full committee roster there or even a healthy portion of it. So what members of Congress tend to do is they tend to arrive, make sure they're counted as having shown up to the committee hearing because you want in your campaign to say that you do the work and you show up to the hearings. And then a lot of them step out and they go back and probably a lot of them head down the street because you have to go off site to do this and they get back on the phone to raise money. Is that still an accurate picture of, of what's going on for the most part in these committee hearings? Yeah, yeah. I mean, with the exception of particularly high sale ones, you know, things that are directly involving, you know, a scandal or, or some major issue of the day. Yeah, members will, will, will pop in for a short time and then they'll bail out. That was my first hearing on Capitol Hill. I was all revved up. I showed up for this important moment in democratic accountability and the dais was nearly empty. And I mean, I hate to like, you know, be the one to, to say, you know, don't look at the man behind the curtain. But if you ever watch C-SPAN and, and you look at the House, you know, floor and, and where members of Congress are giving speeches, chances are it's a pretty empty chamber, too. And you've got a couple of people strategically placed behind whoever is speaking to make it look like there are people in the chamber. There really aren't. It's people talking to pretty much a bunch of empty chairs and whoever happens to like to dial into C-SPAN. You were alluding to, I mean, TV is something that I, I definitely want to talk about a lot more here. But what is, what is sort of the mindset of members of Congress here? Why is it that they're, they're doing what I described a moment ago? They're, they're treating congressional hearings as sort of like, boy, this is the eating my Brussels sprouts of my job. And it's, they, they show up for just long enough to get checked out. It's like if you're going to cut a particularly boring class in high school and you show up just long enough for the teacher to take your name and then you, you kind of slip out the back door. Why are they doing this? Why, why have they become so unserious about this important part of the job? Well, uh, there's two broad reasons that I would point to. First is that, believe it or not, Americans, legislators are heavily overscheduled. They have to spend an inordinate amount of time flying back to their districts because if they don't show up every week, they're going to be accused of having 
caught Potomac fever and become one of those Washington insiders who is out of touch and therefore should be primaried and thrown out of office. And so they spent a lot of time in transit, which, hey, number of hours in the day are limited. So there's that. They also have their time gobbled up by incessant fundraising. Fundraising in DC amongst legislators is an arms race. And the individual member who wants to get reelected has got to raise a lot of money. And if you want a nice uh, seat on a good committee, you've got to raise money for your party also, not just for yourself. So that sort of stuff is eating up your time. It's also the case that government's got a lot bigger, but congressional staff, there's actually fewer of them than there were in the 1980s. So you got more work to do, you know, responding to constituents and all that sort of stuff. Something's got to give. And this gets to the second big reason why committees and hearings are becoming spectacles. Committees have less ability to actually make policy than they used to. The institution of Congress, particularly the House of Representatives, is being run in a very top-down manner, wherein what gets voted on gets decided by the speaker in consultation with WIP and the other top members. And, you know, again, public policymaking is hard. Oversight is hard. Why would you get on a committee and burn untold hours trying to fix a law, improve some, you know, not working agency or solve a problem when you report out your bill and it just sits and nothing happens. And then the Congress expires and <laughs> you start all over again. There's just, you know, that gets to the incentive problem. You know, for James Madison, the idea was that reason you would do the hard work is that it gave you a chance to exert power. You could make a law. Well, you take that away from a member and then you flood them with all sorts of other time-sucking responsibilities. And don't, don't be surprised. I mean, I've heard people liken members of Congress to, to dogs. You know, they're herding dogs, they're retrieving dogs. Every dog needs a job. You don't give that dog a job, they're going to chew on the furniture and act terrible. And that's what we're seeing too often. Doing on the furniture is actually the best version of what a dog does in that circumstance. I think the other version of what a dog does there in terms of making a mess on the floor is what the American public thinks is happening. And they're not wrong. I just want to, I'm going to expound for, I'm going to limit myself to like 45 seconds here, but this probably deserves a whole show of its own to talk about the issue that former Congressman and DCCC Chair Steve Israel raised on 60 Minutes about a year and a half ago. You're not wrong at all. Obviously, you know this about the incessant fundraising. I, I just want to give our listeners a window into the fact that if you are working for a member of Congress, any kind of a competitive race up ahead, and you're not getting your boss to get her or his butt in a seat in a windowless cubicle offsite from, from the Congress to phone people and ask them for money at least four hours a day, you are failing in your job. That has become the number one time use activity of a member of Congress, besides being on a plane to fly back and forth to avoid getting that charge that you've you know, gone Washington and lost touch with your district. That's basically what you do. You raise money and you fly back and forth so that you appear in the district. So there you go. That's why congressional hearings are getting squeezed because as you say, what's the point? I do want to just, I, I feel like I'm, I'm sort of 
spiking the football a little bit on the why does this matter? But there is another aspect of this I just wanted to briefly touch on, which is it feels to me like the fact that Congress has abdicated so much of its policymaking responsibility really should appeal to you wherever you are on the political spectrum. For liberals who are always harping on the idea of, hey, Democrats, we're the party of science. We like to follow data and information. Then this should really matter to you. We should really be wanting to follow data, science, and expertise. For conservatives, it seems to me like one of the consequences of all of this and, and this loss of policymaking and legislative productivity from the US Congress is in that vacuum, the executive branch agencies have come flooding in. Most policymaking at the federal level in America is happening inside the agencies. Now, look, I happen to like federal bureaucrats. Some of my best friends are federal bureaucrats. They do incredibly good work inside the agencies. They're smart, they're dedicated, they care, they're good people, I love them. But if you're a conservative, do you like the idea of bureaucrats in agencies making decisions or do you prefer the idea of elected members of Congress in a republic making decisions? That is my rant. Dr. Kosar, what do you make of that? I mean, shouldn't, shouldn't everybody care about this? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, our Constitution created Congress as the very first branch of government. You look at the Constitution, you'll see Article 1 is the longest. And all legislative powers, all authority to spend money, it starts with Congress. And, you know, our system is one where there's three branches. And if one branch is not exerting its authorities, another branch is going to grab those authorities. And when that happens, when power flows from the legislative branch, the executive or the judiciary, it creates basic questions of legitimacy. You know, here's an issue, clearly legislative. Why is a court making the decision? Oh, it's because Congress is not stepping up and doing it. Salient example of executive taking legislative authority, actually taking authority being given, immigration. How many executive orders have we seen dropped in recent years, flipping the toggle back and forth, Obama one way, Trump the other way, Biden back the other way on the topic of immigration? This would not be happening if Congress sat down and legislated, but instead it's been what, 20 plus years, 30 years since they passed a bill to deal with things. Never mind, reality has changed and policy should change to meet that reality. Yeah, it's 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 a real problem. And I think it eats at the system and it leads to festering problems that don't go away and that become intensely polarized and which you know people get sucked into and it just divides society. If Congress is doing its job, society should be depolarizing because we're taking issues and we're running them through and we're spitting out a law that creates a consensus. And or at least, as you put it earlier, a compromise that people can live with and, and maybe they won't like, but they can live with it and therefore they don't want to go to war over it. Well, I do think it's time to get to the elephant in the room that we teased a few minutes ago. I can't help noticing the correlation between declining numbers of witnesses that you show graphically in your excellent op-ed in the Washington Post and television, not to mention the decreasing productivity of Congress. We know that C-SPAN 
started broadcasting. I believe the, the regular C-SPAN broadcasts, I believe were, were during Watergate or immediately prior. And we used to ensure, one of the things that happened when I was a staffer in Congress was, we used to do what, what you were alluding to a moment ago. We used to ensure that every minute, even if you're talking to an empty chamber, every minute that you had available to your side of the aisle, you had some member of Congress talking about something because of the camera. When you have these performative art moments in, in committee hearings, instead of talking to witnesses, hey, could you instruct us on this? Could we learn something so we could solve a problem? You have performance arts like you know AIG, it's because there's a camera. When members are thinking about how do I create a zinger or a meme, something that will play on social media, a little clip of video that I can use on my next fundraising email, it's because there's a camera. I, I mean, Dr. Crosser, I have to ask, is the problem TV here? Should we turn off the cameras? Yeah, I mean, everything comes with a trade-off and it's the cameras are an example of, or an illustration of the Heisenberg principle, you know? <laughs> cast eyes upon something. And uh, guess what? That something's behavior changes. I mean, anybody who has children knows that's true. And, and yeah, I mean, politicians are rational adapters to their circumstances and, and they will, they will follow whatever path they think is, is best. And, you know, it's funny and symptomatic of the situation. You know, I, I have a, a guy I know named Bill Gray who used to work at C-SPAN and he actually published a book called Floor Charts. And it's just a flip book of some of the most outrageous charts that members of Congress have brought into the chamber. And these are not charts designed to educate visually other legislators. It's all about the camera. It's like, oh, here's Ronald Reagan on top of a dinosaur. You know, here's a big giant greasy cheeseburger. You know, it's just all sorts of stuff like that. And they're performing for the cameras and, you know, if they're doing that, what gets lost? I mean, that's the basic issue. And so it's a, it is an irony that with increased transparency of Congress, we, the public, see less and less of how they do their actual work. Tune in and look at the floor of either chamber. You're not going to see a debate. You're not going to see horse trading. You're not going to see a member raise an idea and then take an amendment and go, oh, that's right. I think you got something there. Let's let's compromise on this. You won't see any of that. Tune into a hearing. You might see some of that still if it's a low salience, boring, non-polarized issue. But you're also going to see a lot of acting up. So question becomes, where's policy being made? We got tons of content, but we don't have a lot of content that's telling us anything. Well, look, I mean, let's let's just nerd out all the way here. I mean, I, I'm glad that you invoked the Heisenberg uncertainty principle. And I mean, it, it, it's true. Things that are observed do change in the very nature. And I had as a guest on the Beyond Politics show, another great podcast for people to subscribe to, please. I had an old friend of mine from the Hill, Michaeline Kroll. She was Bernie Sanders, chief of staff. She was the legislative director for John Lewis. She made a point to me, and I can't remember how much of this was on the air and how much was off the air, that if you want to get something done in Washington, your best starting point as a strategy is it's very Zen-like. Don't let it get noticed. Don't let it become an issue. It's like in order to try, you have to not try because as soon as it gets noticed, the Heisenberg principle kicks in 
and it changes. It becomes a partisan issue. It becomes something to fight about. It becomes a performance art opportunity. I mean, there's probably a less extreme version of this than turn off the cameras altogether. But I, you know, let's, let's get to solutions. Let's get to solutions because you devote, you know, some, some good verbiage in your op-ed to this. And there's obviously been a, a commission looking at this, a modernization committee looking at Congress. What are some of the solutions? Would one of them, for example, be, hey, you know what? We're only going to air an hour of hearings, you know, a, a subset of hearings. There's going to be a whole bunch of them. Cameras are just off. We're going to air an hour of debate on C-SPAN per day, but the rest of the time, the camera's off and we're going to do the hard work that's not going to be performance art. Would that be one of the potential solutions? Yeah, I think, I think members of Congress are very nervous about the accusation that they're trying to go behind smoke-filled doors. You know, heaven forbid they have a private space to, you know, say things, get them wrong, correct themselves, and behave like normal human beings do when they negotiate. And mind you, it's negotiation is an interesting point. Like that's public policy making, involves negotiation. When a union and management in the auto industry or any other industry for that matter negotiate, do they do it on a public platform in front of an entire crowd? Well, of course not. They'd never get anything done. They hide themselves from one another's members. And then they try to get to something and then they come out and sell it collectively. Look, so, I'm one of the only people I know that does my job on TV or on broadcast of any kind, right? Like imagine for all our listeners out there, imagine if your job, every moment of your job was on TV. Yeah. So I, I mean, you know, one of the possibilities of, you know, is that instead of having it be live broadcast video, you might have live broadcast audio. You know, for one, that makes it a little bit harder for people to just quickly create memes that are then used to create toxic narratives in social media. The, you know, the other way is you could have it video, but it's not live video. The video gets released three days later. Because the truth of the matter is your average American is not sitting around thirsting to see what happened on the, in the House Transportation Committee this very day. You know, we can record what happened, but why make it easy for the hyperpartisans to you know, we're basically just feeding them uh, grist for their mills. There are other things that can be done. For one thing in the House, the um, Republicans, they have a policy that when you become a committee chairperson, you can only stay on that as a chair for six years. And again, like getting good at complex policy takes a while. If you know you're going to be out in six years, or you could plead with leadership to be given a waiver to stay longer, why would you work hard at it? It just cuts away the incentive. Select committee has also said that the whole kind of process of doing hearings isn't, isn't particularly modern. If you look at the private sector and how they try to create spaces where decision-making can happen and bargaining can happen and voices can flow, hearings, the way they're structured with people on a dais and people down there and Republicans on one side of the dais and Democrats on the other, that's almost designed for combat and performance. They've done things like, hey, let's have everybody sit around a round table and let's have Dems and Republicans interspersed so that, you know, if you're a Democrat, you can lean over and talk to a Republican. Oh, this is, this is not rocket science. <laughs> it's informed by management science and all sorts of other fields, but there are ways that you can restructure it so it becomes much more of a learning experience and less a, you know, hand-waving sort of exercise. I think also, you know, the way the House and Senate are run, you know, you've got to give 
committee chairs greater authority to bring a bill to the floor, even if it fails. That's, you know, that's a big thing in Congress today. Well, we can't bring up something unless it, if it's going to fail. The only thing we've seen brought to the floor and fail was the purposeful failure of the legislation in the Senate last month. And that, of course, was done for the cameras. <laughs> so, you know, there things exactly. that could be and, done. Well, and, and, and as you say, so much of it is performance art. I mean, look, I, 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 I to some degree, I know that I'm kind of continuing to go back to why this seemingly smaller slice is so important. And I just, to me, it really does zoom out to the whole larger problem. It's, it's a symptom. I mean, it's, it's a problem in itself and it's also a symptom because talk about that failure. Why, why did we do that failure of the voting rights bill? Well, it's to be able to say to your base, Hey, look, at least I got caught trying. And even more important than that, it's because you have to be able to say to your donors, your funders, hey, we, we did this. Because otherwise, I guarantee you, they're going to come to you and they're going to say, well, you wouldn't even try. And we're, we're withholding our checks. And it's <laughs> that I think, you know, look, I, I don't think I said it, we would put in the parking lot to, to return to later, the segment of people who actually tune in by choice to C-SPAN. It's a small segment, although it's surprising. It's surprising how many Americans actually do that. But a much broader swath of people, they pick this stuff up. They, they imbibe all this from the memes and the social media and the coverage and the video and the remaining segment that still watches the nightly news. And they get it. They, they, they pick all of this up. Uh, let, me just ask, let me just ask this as we kind of wind toward the end here. You've obviously been thinking about this broader topic and the congressional hearing piece of it a great deal. You've been researching it. You've done an exhaustive amount of work on it. And there's this whole modernization committee. Is there one reform or maybe maybe a set that you've seen from them or that you've thought about yourself that if you could choose and wave a magic wand that you would put in place that, that you really think would make a meaningful impact? Oh, boy. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a tough one because Congress faces so many different problems. I mean, just as background, I would say that, you know, the last time Congress reorganized itself in a significant way to meet the evolving challenges of the day was the early 1970s. And so they've got problems in all sorts of ways, whether it's information processing to staffing issues, you name it. You know, if there was one thing that I would ask them to do, which wouldn't cost any money, which would save them time, and which many members would find very welcoming, is for them to publicly commit to a calendar where they come to Washington, D.C. on a Monday and they stay through Friday and then they stay through the whole next week and then they go home for one week. Two weeks in, one week out. Two weeks in, one week out. This would cut down on the number of hours of flying and the associated cost with it, which creates lots of you know, stress. It also would mean Congress would be here together and able to get more done. That's one reason you see members of Congress running into a hearing, saying a few words, and then running out of a hearing because they're going to another hearing. If you're only in town three days a week, you got to jam all those hearings in those three days. If you got five days, suddenly your workload could be spread out and you could actually show up. So that would be one thing. And that's something the select committee has made a little bit of progress on in the house, but 
there's no select committee in the Senate and that's too bad. We need both chambers to agree and to sync up their calendars and to be here for longer stretches doing the people's work. And you know what I hear kind of embedded in, in what you just said and in your article and, and everything in this discussion is, it's like the old joke, how many psychiatrists does it take to change a light bulb? The answer is one, but the light bulb has to want to change. And I get the sense that both parties have become so inured to the realities of the current system and, and maybe sort of captive to them that they they don't even really want to change because the change itself, like these committee hearings, is hard. It's down at a detailed level. It's things like scheduling and when are the cameras on and you know how, what committee chairs get to do what work. So I, I really appreciate you running through all this because that is how change happens at a detailed level. So thank you, Dr. Kosar, for running through all of this with us. Well, thanks for having me on and thanks to the listeners for putting